Wow. Thank you, ladies. You know, in a, a season of gift giving, that's some kind of gift, amen? Wow. I got to tell you, um, we've, my wife and I have known Felicia for a couple years, and she's got two boys in children's church, Elliot and Aiden, and uh, she never once shared with us that she had that kind of talent. She's so humble, and I realize how not humble I am, because if I could do that, I'd be telling you all about it all the time. You'd be hearing something about my violin. I'd have it propped in the corner, so you'd, like, in a place you'd have to ask me. Like, it'd be awkward not to. Uh, so thank you very much for doing that. Really appreciate it. That was awesome. Well, good morning. My name's Brock Ashley, and I'm thankful to get to be here with you. Uh, Pastor Mike asked me to share this morning as he, this past week, was graduating from seminary, so he is uh, now uh, officially a master. So you have to refer to him no longer as Pastor Mike, but now Master Mike, or Master Pastor Mike, or Pastor Master Mike. That kind of sounds a little bit like an 80s uh, DJ, Pastor Master Mike. But anyway, so I'm happy to get the opportunity to be here with you. And I can also see why he asked me to share and have to follow up these ladies because, uh, yeah, who wants to follow that up, right? That's not great for me. But I'm happy you're here this morning. So in light uh, of all this and in light of this Christmas season, what we're going to talk about this morning is timing. And we're actually going to talk about uh, God's timing and, and how he always works things out in the perfect time, right? And if you've noticed uh, in life that timing plays a crucial role in pretty much everything, right? There's so many catchphrases as it comes to timing, like uh, the title of this message, The Time is Right, or The Perfect Time, or It's About Time, or, you know, It's Time That Things Happen, It's Time to Get This Party Started, Right? There's all these things that are catchphrases that are related back to timing because it's, it's such a big deal in our day-to-day. And so uh, what does perfect timing look like? I put up there on the screen. And so I'll share with you uh, a story as I was in the sixth grade, and I had gathered together with a bunch of my sixth grade friends in Casey, Illinois, and about six of us to be exact. We went over to my buddy Tim Hensick's house. Now Tim lived out on the edge of town, uh, kind of down a country road, a little road going in front of his house called Oakleaf Road. And uh, as we're getting together, what's important to understand about this story is something that was explained to me much later in life. Uh, I believe Jack Davis was the one that shared it. It's the law of diminishing brains. And so what the law of diminishing brains states is that if you have one boy, you have one brain. If you have two boys, you have half a brain. If you have three boys, you have a third of a brain and so on and so forth. So as you can see, six boys, about 11 years old, gathered together. We had all together in the cumulative one-sixth of a brain working between all of us. So we decided, you know, let's have a little bit of fun. It's a sunny summer day, and we pulled out of the garage Tim's water balloon launcher. Because nothing could be better than launching water balloons in the summer. And so we began to launch water balloons out in his front yard when uh, at some point in time, one of them happened to veer over into Oakleaf Road and hit the pavement to explode. Now, for boys, anything exploding is awesome. I don't know why. I'm almost 40 years old, and I'll tell you to this day, anything exploding is awesome. My wife doesn't understand it, and I said, Honey, there's a reason Arnold Schwarzenegger made an entire career out of things blowing up, because we would go and pay and watch it. There could be no plot line whatsoever. He's going to give the exact same catchphrases, I'll be back, grab my hand, get out of the way, every time, the exact same thing, and yet we pay $8 to see it every time, because stuff's going to blow up, 
right? So things are exploding out in the Oak Leaf Road as, we, as balloons drop, but we made careful to not hit any cars, right? So there are cars going by. We made sure we stopped until we got the brilliant idea with our sixth of a brain, I wonder if we could time it just right to hit a car. That would be awesome, right? And so we set up in position, one boy up at the top of the hill spotting as he saw cars coming over, the other uh, two on each side, the launcher looks something like the picture I put, uh, notifying the boys down below that it's time to get ready to launch the balloon. Now after several attempts, no success. And then it was my turn up at the balloon launcher. And so I made sure to select the right water balloon, one with just the right weight, the right circumference, check the barometric pressure, make sure the wind wasn't going to play any part in this launch. And then I got the signal from the top of the hill. There was a little red Ford Escort coming our way. And so I reared back on the balloon launcher and waited, waiting for the time to be perfect. And then I let loose. And at that point, the balloon actually went in slow motion through the sky. And you could hear the music playing as it came down. And it hits this red Ford Escort, a direct shot right in the windshield. And little boys dancing around like wild Indians. We were so excited. We'd made contact, you know. And uh, all was wonderful in my world. As someone that was the, a bit of the class clown, nothing was better than making your friends laugh. And I had them rolling until we saw brake lights. <laughs> and then the whole story changed. Because what was behind the wheel of the little red Ford Escort was a lady named Shirley Manshold. Now, Shirley was maybe five feet tall, not even 100 pounds, a heavy smoker, and she also possessed a quick first step. She turned that car around in Oak Leaf Road, pulled into Tim's driveway, and she took off after us. And we were like cockroaches when you turn on the light. We scattered all back down into the woods, looking to get away from this crazy lady, who at this point is giving us a profanity-laced tirade that I, had, I didn't even know you could assemble words this way. I'm like, that, that is amazing. I remember turning around thinking, I didn't know you could do that. Wow. And she is off. But then all at once, she stopped her pursuit. We think, wait, wait a second. Maybe, maybe Shirley has decided she's not quick enough for us, right? What we didn't realize is that Shirley was a crafty veteran. Instead of continuing to chase us through the woods, she made a different direction. That would be for Tim's front door, where his mom, Jana Hensick, my fourth grade school teacher, uh, would answer. And she would receive the same tongue lashing from little Shirley that we got in the backyard, only uh, Jana took it much differently. So she called all of us boys back into the living room, and uh, I want to tell you that out of all five of my friends sitting there, not a single one of them stood up for me. They all rolled on me like mobsters trying to get in the witness protection program. They gave me up. It was all my idea. And so I took the heat for the whole thing. But needless to say, I share that story to say what I thought was perfect timing turned out to be very different than perfect timing. And so as we get into the scripture this morning, we are going to get to Galatians chapter 4 here in just a minute. I want to just share with you that Rarely is God's timing about our gratification, but it is always about our good. So as we look at the timing of the Lord, He is always concerned about the eternal and the things of the Spirit, and He is rarely concerned, if ever, about our flesh, which is the thing that I'm mostly concerned about. That feels good, that looks good, that tastes good. So let's look at timing this morning as we uh, 
venture into Galatians chapter 4. And begin with me, if you would, in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so to begin with this morning, we see this uh, phrase, the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, and you could also translate this to being the appointed time, giving us the idea that there was some type of a, an appointment that had taken place from long ago. And what we read in 1 Peter 1.20 is that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. So even before creation, Jesus, it had been decided by the triune Godhead that Jesus would be the one that would come down and he would be our redemption. That this had already been decided. But we don't see the beginnings of the actual earthly portion of it playing out until the birth of Christ, that season that we're celebrating right now. And when the fullness of time, it gives us this idea that God had always had this clock ticking down until eventually the time would be filled where he would send his son to do what they had decided even before creation. And so to give us a little bit of a background on what, what that timing looks like, if you would turn with me to the left of the book of Daniel in chapter 9. I'd like to look at this prophecy that Daniel was given Actually, from the angel Gabriel, it happens to be the same angel Gabriel that went to Mary and told her that she was going to give birth to a son and that he would be the Messiah. So it appears that the angels actually have different tasks, and, and that Gabriel's task that he has, that God's given him, is to usher in the Messiah. But in verse 24, what he says of chapter 9 in relation to timing is that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore the, and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. And so this clock actually is laid out here for us that in a total of 69 weeks, it's important to understand that when they talk about weeks, it's much like us talking about a decade. A decade for us is a 10-year period, right? A week for them is a week of years. It's a seven-year period. So in doing the math, you can understand that 69 weeks times seven years gives you 483 years and these are by the Babylonian calendar, which was a 360-day calendar. I know a lot of mathematics for early on a Sunday morning, but, but I did some of the work for you on the screen. You end up with a total of 173,880 days until the Messiah would come. But not from the prophecy given here in Daniel. What he says is from the order that was given to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So what you have to do is go back to the book of Nehemiah, a little bit to the left, and I'll summarize this story for you. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, what we see here is this character Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. Now, Israel is still in the Medo-Persian uh, empire. They went from the Babylonians to now the Medo-Persians, and they're still in captivity in Nehemiah, one of the Jews, is the cupbearer, which seems like kind of a trivial job, that his job is just to give a cup to the king. But 
uh, the cupbearer was actually the head of the household. So he was like the, the head butler. He gave all the orders for everyone in the king's house. And he also had a direct connection and FaceTime with the king. And what Nehemiah gets is he gets a report from Jerusalem where some of the captives had gone back that the walls are in complete disarray, that the roads are a disaster, that everything is a mess. And Nehemiah is bummed out. He's upset by the report that he gets, and he's struggling to actually hold back his disappointment, and, uh, which is a little bit dangerous for him because one of the things you don't want to do as someone that has face time with the king is you don't want to go in and bum the king out. That seems a little trivial to us that just going in and bumming the king out can actually have dire consequences. But in this time, if you upset the king because of your demeanor, you could actually be put to death. So Nehemiah has to put on his happy face until one day, we're told here, in the month of Nisan, our March, that he goes in before the king and he can't hide his disappointment, his uh, being upset by what's taken place with his brethren. And so the king, instead of having him put to death because he sees he's bummed out, the king actually likes Nehemiah and he says, hey, what, what's up? What's going on? You, you look upset. Tell me about it. And so Nehemiah, it says, with great fear, goes ahead and shares with the king what's taken place in the city of Jerusalem. Now the king likes Nehemiah again, as I said, and so instead of uh, anything bad happening, he says, you know what, I want you to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He gives the order right then to rebuild the walls and the streets, and he puts Nehemiah in charge of the operation. So he sends back the captives back to the place where they were originally taken from, in essence, to resurrect the city. Pretty cool story. And that also takes place on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, to go back to our math problem earlier, if you add the 173,880 days onto this date that we're given in the book of Nehemiah, what you come to is April the 6th, 32 A.D., what we commonly call Palm Sunday. That's the day of Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had been to Jerusalem before this day, but he'd never been to Jerusalem and gone through the eastern gate where he was declared king and palm branches laid down and they cry, Hosanna, and they actually honor him as king and savior and Messiah. So Jesus, we see, fulfilling this perfect timing. I put the scriptural references up there for you. And my point to all that of the story is that God's timing is always perfect. He is right on time, exactly as predicted. I don't know about you, but there's no little G God that can predict that kind of timing, right? And so, let's continue on. That if God's timing and His, his appointments are so important, let's look at a few other appointments that God lays out for us in Scripture. Maybe we'll see somewhat of a pattern. But in relation to Jesus heading to Jerusalem, one thing I wanted to share with you from Luke chapter 9, and I'll, I'll read the verse to save you the thumb turning. But in Luke 9.51, as it concerns him going to Jerusalem for this appointment, he says, Now it came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So when the time had come, Jesus, knowing that this countdown is taking place, he steadfastly sets his face. He gets a look on his face of determination. He's not going to miss this appointment. He's not going to be fashionably late. It's not okay if he's there a day or two after he said he was going to be there. He knows he's going to be there at the exact appointed 
time. So if this appointment is important, again, let's look at a few other appointments. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 is where I'd like to take you. Next. In Leviticus 23, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, in verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Now this is important to note, that he says these are my feasts. These aren't Jewish feasts. These aren't Hebrew feasts. These aren't just for the nation of Israel. These are my feasts. I'm God. These are mine. And what else I want to point out to you is that this word, holy convocations, is the Hebrew word mikra, which also means rehearsals. So what God's saying is these are my holy rehearsals. Now all of us know if we're going to go to a wedding rehearsal, it's with the idea that eventually there's going to be an actual wedding. Nobody wants to suffer through the wedding rehearsal and all that jazz without getting to go to the day and frankly get to go to the, rehearsal, to, to the reception, right? Nobody's going to it without the reception. That's what we're after. And so this, uh, this word rehearsals could also mean practices. So basically what God's saying is these are my holy rehearsals, my practices, and if it's a practice, then for what event? Well, right after April the 6th, Palm Sunday, just a few days later is uh, what is known as Passover, the first feast mentioned in Leviticus, 23, er, in Leviticus 23. Jesus was crucified on Passover. The perfect lamb, the lamb of God, the one without blemish, without spot, was crucified on the first feast. The second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, leaven was always a picture of sin in the Old Testament. And so what the Jews were told is, as I'm bringing you out of Egypt, travel with bread that doesn't have leaven in it because leaven is a picture of sin. What God's saying is remove the sin from your life and I want you to travel with this bread. So here you have Jesus who knew no sin, who was the bread of life, who broke his body, it was broken for you, and he's buried the next day on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're starting to pick up on a pattern here. A few days later is the Feast of First Fruits. What Paul calls Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead at the Feast of First Fruits. And then, 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, if you look in Acts chapter 2, what you'll see there is that all of the disciples are gathered in the upper room, and what takes place is that none other than the Holy Spirit is then given to the disciples as they're gathered together on the Feast of Pentecost. All of these festivals had a much greater meeting, and in fact, they were all a timeline that God had laid out. He laid out appointments that were fulfilled. They were rehearsed year after year, but they weren't fulfilled until Jesus walked through the city gates of Jerusalem that first time. And so, with all this being in mind, then we've got this gap, right? There's no feasts that take place during the summer. It's often called the summer harvest. You could even call that the church age. All leading up to the fall festivals, which are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So if the spring feasts have this greater meaning, this godly time clock, if you want to put it that way, then what about these fall feasts? Well, the Feast of Trumpets is interesting because it is marked by a new moon, an astrological event. 
Now those things, especially in their day and age that we're talking about, are a little bit difficult to predict because the, the new moon you have to actually watch for and, and notate the different phases of the moon. So what they would do is they would send two witnesses to go out, each to confer about what day they think the new moon is going to take place. And because there was some ambiguity to it, what the Jews began to refer to this feast as is the day is the feast where the day and the hour are not known. Does that sound familiar at all? As Jesus is talking about his second coming, he says the day and the hour are not known. Now he gives us some indicators of what the day and the hour might look like. He, he gives us examples of the fig tree, that when you see the fig tree beginning to blossom, and the fig tree throughout Scripture is the nation of Israel. So here we have the nation of Israel now reborn and beginning to blossom. He's saying, now get ready. You're seeing the harvest come close. So that's the Feast of Trumpets. And what takes place is the next 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets, they have the Days of Awe, where they're supposed to get together and get themselves ready for judgment on the Day of Atonement. They're supposed to take this time and get ready for judgment. That being the tribulation period, as the world gets ready to be judged on Yom Kippur. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles is this feast that once it's all over, they get together, they go out, and they build little tents, little huts, and they live in these things for a week-long period to honor the time that God brought them through the wilderness and then brought them into the Promised Land. So they're actually called to go out of their houses, go camping for a week, just take the kids out and go camp, and just honor the Lord. Just praise Him as you go out and you dwell in these tabernacles or these tents. I'll take you to one other place as we think about dwelling in tabernacles and tents. And this is a spot that gets read a lot this time of year, this Christmas season. It's in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of, one, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that phrase can actually mean as in dwelling in a tent or a tabernacle. So what this is calling us back to is there's going to be a thousand year millennial reign. We get to just hang out with Jesus and he actually dwells among us, right? Just like the Feast of Tabernacles. So all this to say that the point really is a plan of redemption. If we go back to the root text back in Galatians chapter 4 verse 5. Well, I'll begin in verse 4 just to reread that. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So the point of all of this plan that God started way back with the birth of Jesus is a plan of redemption. All the way through, we see all these feasts point to a time of redemption. And the and redemption from what? Redemption from the law, which points out our sin, right? On Mount Sinai, as Moses is bringing down the law, as he's giving the law to the nation of Israel, he brings it down, and what he sees when he gets down to the bottom of the mountain is that pagan worship's going on, there's all kinds of crazy stuff, because they didn't know what happened to Moses, they thought maybe he died up there, and they begin to worship the gods of Egypt, the way they had done before they were brought out of that area. And so in order to get rid of this evil pagan worship, the Levites go out and they kill 3,000 men that day. 3,000 people lose their life the day the law is given. And yet going to the Feast of Pentecost that we just talked about as the Holy Spirit is given, 
3,000 men get saved that day. You see, the law always brings about death, and the Spirit always brings about life. And that's the reason for all of this. That's the reason for the season. It's all about bringing about life and redemption. And so you might say that's a lot of craziness. Let's continue on in the story, and we'll see if I can tie this back together. Back in verse 5, that we might, to, I'll start at the beginning of the verse, to redeem those who are under the law, for what reason? That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So the point is redemption, but it doesn't just stop there. It stops with us actually receiving an inheritance as sons. And so the first question that I put up there on the screen for you this morning is, are you ready for Jesus to walk in if he walked in today? And I don't mean just figuratively like in a story, but I mean if he actually walked in today to your very presence, are you ready for that? Because in 32 AD, that's what took place that day. Jesus physically and actually walked into the city. And I'm going to read for you out of Luke 19 how Jesus felt about walking in to the city of Jerusalem. Luke 19, verse 41. And now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what Jesus didn't do is he didn't do an Irish jig, even though in his air Jerusalem he probably could have done a pretty awesome Irish jig in celebration. He actually wept because the people had been practicing for 1,500 years for this day, and they did not know the day of their visitation. They had been rehearsing year after year for this series of events, and they did not know it had finally come. And what was going to happen, because they did not know it, is that 38 years later, the entire city would be ransacked, destroyed, burnt. Their precious temple wouldn't have one stone left, not one upon the other, when the Romans got done with them. If you'd only known what made for your peace. 1,500 years of practice, and they couldn't get it right. And then I think about how many years of practice I've had sitting in a seat about like that. Year after year, time after time, Sunday after Sunday, coming together at an appointed time. God goes with us everywhere, it's true, but there are times that he appoints, that he promises, just like with these feasts. What he tells Israel is, I'm going to show up even bigger for you. I'm going to show up there, and my presence is going to be there. And how many times have I sat in a spot on a Sunday, and I just went through the motions? <laughs> I just kind of lobbed my way through practice never thinking about the possibility that Jesus could have walked in that day. That's a scary thing to think about. And the next question I put up here is, 
What is he doing in your life to draw you close? If you're in that spot where you're just going through the motions, is he doing little things in your life? Is he trying to draw you in, to bring you in? Maybe you don't know why these events are, are happening. You're not quite sure. I met with a guy on Wednesday of this week and uh, in, in the process of doing some business with him. I just asked him about how he got to this point. You know, he's, he's in some real estate development. And I just said, you know, what's, what's kind of your story? And he said, well, in, in uh, 2008, I actually owned two banks in the Minneapolis metropolitan area. And he said, we were pretty successful. I had a good business. I had about a $50 million development company. I owned these two banks. And he said, and then in 2008, the government came in and they said, you're doing all these commercial loans. You're giving out all this money commercially, but you're doing nothing in residential. So they, because they're the government and they can, they strong-armed this guy into loaning out money uh, for residential loans, home mortgages. And so he, he relented and did. They loaned out about $13 million in residential loans throughout the greater Minneapolis area. And then what took place was 2010 happened, and the real estate market completely crashed. The bubble burst. And what this guy was left with was $13 million of essentially unsecured loans that they had to make good on. And so he said at that time, the government came and they had a cash call. We had to make good on all these loans that we had out there. And the development company and the two banks and all the houses, it all went away. Every last bit of it. And the guy's telling me this with a smile on his face. So he said, the wife and I, we loaded up in the RV and... We had to sell everything, and, and uh, we liquidated, and we just drove around the country for a while. We stopped in Nebraska, which is where he lived now, and he said we bought a townhouse next to her sister who was having some bad health, and we helped her out, and, and we just, you know, we, we just made do. We, we learned what was important in life, and he had this smile. I'm like, wow, that, that's an amazing story, and, and you've got this demeanor. You know, he's happy to be here. And he said, you know, the, the part I didn't share with you is I told you my story, but I can tell you're a good Christian man, I'll, I'll fill you in. He said, there was one night, as all the papers were stacked up and everything that I'm supposed to sign is all there, he said, it was spread out all over this conference room table, and I realized it was all coming crashing down. He said, I, I got up that night, in the middle of the night, and I went downstairs at our lake house, overlooks the lake. He said, and I wrote my wife a note. He said, and I loaded the revolver, and I was prepared to just end it. Because there was no other way for me to get out of this thing. Not at least that I could see. And he said, the thing is, Patty never wakes up. She never, nothing can wake her up. You know, she's like the, the Christmas movie, the National Lampoon. She, a, nitro, a dump truck through a nitroglycerin plant wouldn't wake her up. But he said, for some reason, that night, she woke up. And she came downstairs, and she found me finishing the note, getting ready to do what I thought needed to be done. For some reason, or someone woke her up. He said, and then I knew what God had for me. It wasn't, it wasn't this. This wasn't my end. And so every day after that, he said, it's a gift. You know, we might have lost everything in some instances, but he said, really, in reality, we gained everything. You know, the business was, was bigger than what I could handle, and it all felt like it was crashing down anyhow. So he's like, really, it was just God's grace. He wasn't concerned about this man's gratification. He was concerned more about his good. And so, what's he doing in your life to draw you close? Maybe there's things like this that are happening. 
Or let me switch gears. Perhaps you're in a spot where you know that Jesus is in control. You know he's your Lord. You've been coming to rehearsal and you've been trying to do your best, but you're, you're having some injury problems. Anybody that's played sports know you've got to play through injuries, right? There's the pain that takes place. And maybe you're in a spot this morning where you're just flat injured. It just hurts a little bit. Well, I'll share with you the reason for the season is this. It's recompense, deliverance, and inheritance. Recompense, Jesus being that payment. For what? For our deliverance. And it doesn't just stop there, though, you see. It moves on to so that we can receive. Not anything we've earned, but so we can receive our inheritance. If we look back at what we just read, is that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, as we limp along through this thing, injured, hurt, trying to figure it all out, we're not just limping along through here, these people that are barely delivered. We are sons and daughters of God. And if so, then we have a right as sons and daughters to call on Him. If any of you have kids out there, maybe they're like my kids, where they'll catch me in things and they'll say, oh, Dad, can we... Can we go to Licks today? And I usually don't be paying attention. I'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we can get ice cream. That's fine. And I'll go on about my business. But then later on, they'll ask, Dad, remember we were going to go to Licks today, get some custard, the greatest place in Farmington. And I'll say, oh, I'm busy. I mean, we got stuff going on. We're not probably going to go to Licks today. And they almost always followed up by saying, but, Dad, you promised. You promised. And then my heartstrings are tugged. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did promise. Dang it. Got to be this good example. You understand, as sons and daughters of God, you can go to him and say that. Abba, Father, Dad, you promised. And right here is the promises. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll work all things to the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And you go to him and you can say, Dad, I feel forsaken. I don't know how this is going to turn out for good. It sure doesn't feel easy, it doesn't feel light. Dad, you promised though. And know that he is a good father. And what he does is always fulfill his promises. He always comes through. I might fail, I let my kids down from time to time. We don't always get to go to licks like what I promised. But God's not like that, you see. It's always the way he promised it would be. And so we can cling to that. If you're hurt, if you're injured, cling to that. Go back to him with things that are in his word and present it to him and say, Dad, this is what you said. Aren't you going to do these things? And I think you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised that he will. So, Father, thank you for being way better than we could be as earthly fathers and mothers. Thank you for the way that you always come through. And even though we get ourselves in tight spots and and we get ourselves in positions that are difficult, that you, uh, you fulfill your end of the bargain every time.
Lord, um, I just call on you now that if there are hearts here that, that haven't quite decided to stop making this a rehearsal day and start making this a game day, that they would change. Father, don't let us be a people that for thousands of years can practice something and never, ever realize that the day has actually come. We don't want to stand having to see you on that day. Not like that, Lord. We want to stand on that day as sons and daughters of the inheritance. So thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this Christmas season, how we can think about your payment. Thank you how we can glory in your deliverance and we can rest in your inheritance. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.